Well, he was in his 30s. I was in my 50s. He was army fit. He'd been a member of the South Korean army. He was a student at our college. And he challenged me to race him up 100 steps to see who could get the, be the first to the top. I was always ready for a challenge. After about three months of intensive physiotherapy, I could just walk normally again. Reality. We don't like to face reality. We demand it from our leaders, but when they give it to us, we don't appreciate it. Malcolm Fraser was a coalition prime minister, and on one occasion he told the nation life wasn't meant to be easy. We never re-elected him. Bob Carr was a premier of this state, and on one occasion he said, well, for most people, life is an inherently disappointing experience. We never re-elected him because we can't take reality. Now, I put it to you, if you've got your Bible there, please open it at chapter 12 of Acts, because here we find a most realistic chapter in a most realistic book. And Luke, who is our writer, who is our historian, is also a doctor, and he is writing his characters realistically. And what you immediately find when you come to Acts chapter 12 is that it's unnecessary. I mean, if you look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 13, they flow completely well without any interruption of Acts chapter 12. So at the end of chapter 11, we're in the church at Syrian Antioch, and uh, Barnabas and Saul are going to take welfare to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, we're back at the church in Syrian Antioch, where they're meeting together to set apart Barnabas and Saul and the others. So why is it that our author includes all these verses, 25 different verses, into God's revelation when it seems so unnecessary that the narrative could flow without it? And it is because the Bible, God is always wanting us to come to terms with reality. And it is reality that we often miss out on. Real wisdom is to live in harmony with reality. Don't live in a fool's paradise, live in reality. And I put it to you that Luke, our author, wants to drive home to us five issues of reality. And maybe today you will need one of these reminders at least. You'll see them in your outline there. First, this chapter reminds us that the world is a dark place. Though the church is growing, 3,000 people, 5,000 people, the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, Saul, so many people are coming to Christ, there will always be a loathsome political expedient, and in this case, verse 1, his name is Herod, who for good political reasons to get the Jews on side, look at verse 1, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church simply because it suited his politics. Now, the world is not our home. Jesus said they treated me poorly, and you can be sure they'll treat you poorly. And I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you won't doubt I told you before it was going to happen. In other words, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And notice the effect of this in verse 2. James is dispatched with one word in the Greek. It just says, James, the brother of John, by sword. In other words, Herod has James beheaded. And he noticed that this pleases the Jews, and so he takes Peter, the apostle, and he throws him into prison, and he could well feel pleased, couldn't he? This growing Christian movement all of a sudden has stopped. It stopped with one beheaded apostle, 
and another apostle in prison, chained up between many guards. Things are going well. The world is a dark place. Now, another James, James the brother of Jesus, in a very realistic letter in the New Testament, the letter of James says that the world is the enemy of God. And if you're a friend of the world, then you're an enemy of God. And Herod was a friend of the world, he was the world, and he was an enemy of God. The world is a dark place for the believer, and so why do I expect it to be any different? So when we have some offensive leader comes along, he fits the pattern precisely. He is another Herod. He is another Nero. He is another Diocletian. He is another Mao. He is another Hitler. He is another Stalin. He is another King Jong-un. He is another Putin. He is another one. The world is full of these political expedients and the world is a dark place and Jesus says, you can be sure they'll give you a hard time. Now, second point. There is more to reality than meets the eye. Have a look at it again. Heaven is a real destination. Don't be afraid. Someone said it's very hard to beat an enemy who's not afraid to die. And we as the people of God are not afraid of death because it means heaven. Look at verse 2. James, the apostle, the brother of John, He's an inner circle apostle. He's an executive apostle. When Jesus wanted just the inner circle to come together, he'd choose Peter, James, this James, and John. And yet, uh, when his death is reported here, look at this. Can you imagine if you were the widow of James? She would come along and she'd shake Luke. And she'd say to Luke, the author, how come you've given my husband just one verse? All his death means to you is one verse, James by sword. And yet he's an inner circle apostle. And yet when it comes to a person who's not even an apostle, he's a deacon. Back in chapter 7, you give the death of Stephen 75 verses. How is that fair? 75 verses to Stephen? One verse to James? What's going on here? And Luke would say in very nice terms to the widow, reality is going on here. God's great purpose is to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. God so loved the world that he gave his son to die and he gave his church to take the message of that death to the end of the earth. And the death of Stephen is particularly important because it's a major catalyst to get the gospel from Jerusalem into the Gentile territories, into Samaria. But the death of your husband had no discernible effect on the gospel's movement. You see, the reality is that God does bury his messengers, but he never buries his message. James' ministry is over, and God has taken him to heaven. God is purposeful. What's what's going on with Peter? Why does James die and Peter stay alive in prison? Because God still has work for Peter to do. It's a vital contribution that Peter has to make. And when our work is over... God takes us home. It's very difficult to beat an enemy who's not afraid to die. Now, I can remember many years ago, I went to Manila in the Philippines and the people who picked me up put me in the back of a truck, an open truck, just with a bench on either side. We're in the midst of a traffic jam in metropolitan Manila and my host held up the newspaper which said, Metropolitan Cop Chief Assassinated, Killed, by communist New People's Army Sparrow Unit. They'd come on motorcycles, they'd come up next to his car in Metropolitan Manila, they'd filled it with bullets and they went away. And my host said, here, 
And the communist New People's Army hate all Americans. And all Australians look like Americans. But don't worry, if we send you back to Australia in a box, you'll know your work for God is over. Now, that's realistic. I would have liked to put in more gentle terms, but it's realistic. The reality is that when we have made our contribution, God takes us home and he takes us home to heaven. When Billy Sunday preached in support of prohibition, the mafia heads came along to the American evangelist Billy Sunday and said, if you don't stop preaching against prohibition, then we'll take you out. And Billy Sunday said, you threaten me with heaven. You threaten me with heaven. That's what you're doing. God is a sovereign, caring shepherd of his sheep. None shall be lost. He will see us home. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of James. And he takes him home because his work for God is over on this earth. The world is a dark place. Heaven is a real home. Thirdly, Notice here, prayer to God is always our effective response. Look at verse 5. Underline it. James is dead. Peter is in prison. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but earnest prayer, not just prayer, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. The response of the church to the death of a leading apostle and another apostle in prison was to pray But Luke is a realist. He doesn't want us to think that prayer changes things. Prayer does not change things. God changes things. The church met together to pray. It's not a magic mantra to get what we want. It springs from a relationship with God. Earnest prayer was made and Peter is released. Now look at verse 12. Realistic, remember. He comes to the house of Mary where the church is meeting to pray earnestly for his release. You can imagine the way they're praying. Oh, Lord God, please, you're in control of all things. Please release our brother Peter from prison. And here's the answer to their prayer. He knocks on the door. The servant girl, Rhoda, comes out to answer. She's so overjoyed when she realises that it's Peter's voice that Peter has been released, she runs back inside. She says, everybody... God has answered our prayer. Peter's standing at the door. Look at verse 15. You are out of your mind. They didn't believe for one moment that God would release Peter. But Peter kept knocking at the door. And they went and opened the door. And they saw him, verse 16, and they were amazed. Now, don't you think this is wonderful? That Luke could have told us Peter was in prison The church earnestly prayed for him. The angel of God kicked him awake. Peter was released. He came to the home of Mary and they were all pleased because they were praying earnestly for him. No, 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 no. Luke shows us that the church, though they were praying earnestly, they were praying unbelievably. They didn't believe for a moment that God could do what uh, God said he would do. Now, they didn't imagine that Peter could be released. This is great encouragement to God is bigger than your praying. He's not limited by my praying. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So keep praying earnestly because my faith will never be up to God's ability to do what he says he will do in response to our praying. Pray, pray. And bring your unbelieving prayer to God and tell him, oh, I find this hard to believe that you could save this person. 
Oh, God, help me with belief in the midst of my unbelief. Fourthly, notice that no prison can thwart the purposes of God. This is a great reminder, isn't it? Sometimes when I talk to people about politics, which I occasionally do, and they talk about this Premier or that Prime Minister, forget it. This Premier, that Prime Minister, they cannot thwart the purposes of God. Look at verse 4. Peter is secure. Four squads of four soldiers each, that's 16. He's chained, verse 6, between two, centri- between two soldiers and there's a sentry at the door. Verse 10, he comes past the first guard, past the second guard. He comes to the iron gate which opens. Peter, verse 6, is asleep. The angel strikes him awake. He says, get up quickly. His chains fall off. Get dressed. Put on your sandals. Verse 9, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And then out on the street, now I know, verse 11, he says that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. God cannot be thwarted. Squads of guards, prison walls cannot frustrate his purpose. Acts of parliament People in authoritative positions cannot thwart the purposes of God. No prison can thwart the purpose. The prison in Jerusalem couldn't. And the prison in Philippi with Paul and Silas couldn't either. Fifthly, God is a jealous God. Now, sometimes people recoil from that. Oh, God is envious? No. The deaf language for for envy or jealousy is this. You take your little finger, jealousy of and you grind it into your gritted teeth. That is jealousy of. The Bible never says that God is jealous of, but he is jealous for. He is jealous for, and the deaf language for jealousy for is two open palms. He is jealous for his people's love. He is jealous for our recognition. He is jealous for his own glory. Now look here at the ruthless Herod. Verse 19, he has all these guards put to death. He blames them for Peter's escape. Verse 20, he's angry with Tyre and Sidon, and so he ruthlessly cuts off their food supplies. Verse 21, Herod in all his splendour, somehow they encourage him uh, to to speak to them, and he delivers an oration. And look at this, when was the last time you heard one of our politicians speak and you attempted to shout, verse 22, oh, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. They must have been very hungry indeed. Maybe the same angel who freed Peter and kicked him awake, verse 23, now struck Herod down. And Luke, who was a doctor, tells you the cause of death. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last because he gave no glory to God. Throughout Acts, when anybody is asked to report on mission, they never say, this is what we did. They always say, this is what God the Lord did through us. Give him the glory. So the chapter which begins with James, dead, Peter in jail, the Jews on side, Peter's escape, Herod's wormy death and his eternal imprisonment. The angel strikes Peter awake, but he strikes Herod down. And the one who refused food for Tyre and Sidon becomes food himself for worms. 
the political opportunist fails. God is a jealous God for his own triumphant glory. And what's the point of all this? Well, to remind you and remind me, verse 24, that's where it's building, isn't it? But as Herod is eaten to death by worms, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's what God's great purpose is. God will glorify himself. No matter what leadership does, God will continue to build his church. His gospel will progress. It will increase and multiply. So what happens here? Well, Peter goes on to Rome, and in 64 AD, he is arrested under the emperor Nero, another political opportunist, and Peter is crucified. And by tradition, Peter says that he is not worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus, so he is crucified upside down, head first into the ground. And then Paul goes along, and in the same year, 64 AD, Paul is under house arrest in Rome and under the emperorship of Nero. Paul also is put to death and he is beheaded because he is a Roman citizen. But one ancient historian said the day would come when men would call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. Their dogs Nero. God will glorify himself. God will triumph. God will triumph not through the armour of Saul but the stones of King David. Not through the 32,000 of Gideon's army, but through the 300 of Gideon's army. Not through some triumphant general, but through a crucified Jew. Be careful, therefore, in the midst of our targets to give all glory to God, for he is jealous for his glory and our recognition. A number of years ago now, Maxine and I went to a friend's 75th birthday party. I think it was his 75th. And he hired out a large ballroom in one of the big hotels in Sydney. He invited all his friends. This man, for 15 years or so, had been a converted man, a Christian. And so all his friends got up and they said, what a great man this man was, all the things that he had done, how he had been changed. And then right at the end, his pastor got up and his pastor simply said this, let's give glory where it is due. Let's pray. And we all gave thanks, not for this man, but we gave thanks to God for his work in this man's life. Now, friends, here are the five points of reality. The world is a dark place. Heaven is a real destination. Prayer to God is always effective. Prison and governments are no barrier to the purposes of God. And God is a jealous God. He is on the throne and he's in the spotlight. The world, a dark place, don't expect it to be any different. Heaven is a real destination. Are you living for heaven? Prayer is always effective. Do you pray? Prison and nothing, no barrier can thwart the purpose of God. Every challenge is an opportunity. And God is a jealous God. He's on the throne. You get off it. He's in the spotlight. You get out of it. Right. Under your pew... There is an outline of today's sermon under one pew. Don't think it's not under your pew. Have a look and have a look along. And if you find it, have a look. If there's no one else in your pew, have a look. Come along, come along. 
No, come on. It's there. Come on, you Hansons. Get out. Come on. Have a look in the pew behind. Come on, there's one person on the end of that pew. You're not looking. Okay. Good grief. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Let's come, James, down here, please. What was the problem, James? What's the matter with you? (laughs) Okay, now take that mask off. Take this off. Right. Now, there you go. Here's an outline. The world. What aspect of reality do we learn about the world, putting the pressure on you, boy? (laughs) The world's a dark place. The world's a dark place. Heaven Heaven is our home. Our real destination. Our real destination. Always effective, so pray. Prison. Prison. Don't be afraid. Prison can <laughs> never thwart the purpose of Prison God. can never thwart the purpose and of jealous, God. jealous for his glory and our recognition, eh? Those five aspects of reality. Good on you. Thanks. Let's pray. I, I did have a chocolate here for you if you're a kid, but I know you wouldn't want it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are at work in history and we thank you for the great encouragement we receive from this chapter that reminds us of the environment in which we live, the place for which we hope, our effective response to uh, anxiety. Also, Heavenly Father, that reminds us that nothing can thwart your purpose and that you are jealous for recognition and glory. Continue, we pray, to triumph through us and continue, we pray, in the face of opposition to build your church. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.